Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 106 with Artie Jordan. Artie is a vice president of IT, and he's going to be talking soft skills. You might not expect to hear about soft skills from such a person, but you will, and it's fun. So you're going to learn, one, how to keep your team agile, two, common pitfalls in communication, and three, the most important soft skill that your team should practice now. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned here, Drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep106 to see those. And while you're over at awesomeatyourjob.com, please take a look around. You might sign up for the 10 Days to Winning at Work free email course with tips and tricks for slashing waste at work or the Gold Nugget email summary notes from our guests, which lets you get the best tidbits in your inbox that you can read in under two minutes and so much more. So drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com while you're seeing Artie's stuff at awesomeatyourjob.com slash 106. So here's Artie's story. Artie is a member of 2U's tech leadership team, former member of the Obama for America team, and founding board member of CSTUY, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing opportunities in computer science and technology to middle and high school students. Also a fellow University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign alum, ILL, he is active in the New York tech meetup scene and an advocate for professional development and soft skills training for technical workers. Here is Artie. Artie, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh man, thanks so much for having me. This is great. Oh, I'm glad to have you as well, but I want to make sure that I get out there first of all, ILL. Yeah, <laughs> Illinois, baby. That's right. That's right. University of Illinois. Respect. That's very cool. And so can you tell me about CSTI, what it is and why you feel passionate about it? Yeah, sure. So CSTI is a nonprofit. Some folks and I started in New York City, the computer science technology for urban youth. And the goal there is to take some um, computer science curriculum from one of the high schools here that a guy named Mike Zemanski or just Z that inspired a pretty big generation of folks to go into the technical field and bring that curriculum to the broader New York City area. And it's a big passion for me because I definitely am a, a true believer when it comes to the empowering nature of learning how to program, how to you know do system administration, how to just use computers, and I think it gives people a huge leg up. So it's been a real pleasure to work with those folks. Oh, that does sound really cool. Yes, absolutely. And so I'd also like to hear a little bit about one of your historical experiences, because you know right now, you know as we're speaking, we've got a president transitioning into the White House, and you've used technology to help Barack Obama do just that. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? Indeed. Yeah. So in 2008, I was living in Chicago and had the opportunity to go volunteer for the headquarters team for the Obama for America 08 campaign. Joined the team full time that summer and led the telephony rollout for what's called Get Out the Vote, which is this big period during any big campaign where uh, folks just try to engage with voters and figure out who's going to go to the polls. And then on election night, my boss pulled me aside and said, so Looks like we're going to win. <laughs> Can you get in your car and drive to Washington tomorrow and help with the transition? All big campaigns prepare for this kind of thing. So I worked in D.C. on a big group of people basically trying to 
assist with all the interviews for all of the uh, staff that are going to uh, work for the new administration. They call it the Plum Book. It's this plum-colored book <laughs> that has all the uh, appointments that the incoming administration can make. So for us, it was uh, putting together a big database, if folks remember, change.org, and putting together a big sort of application system for folks to apply and helping folks set up meetings and just meeting a lot of really interesting folks. And then on the side, I kind of went around D.C. and went to a bunch of conferences and heard from a bunch of folks and wrote a couple of memos basically talking about what could be done you know, using a lot of the new technologies that had come in and that had debuted between administrations. So I learned a lot about cloud computing around that time as well. And, you know, during the last eight years, I think the federal government's done a lot of work to prepare more traditional organizations like federal government to be able to utilize less traditional (laughs) software as a service type services like Salesforce or Amazon.com or things like that. Amazon Web Services, I should say. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Cool. And so some of the stuff you wrote up has gotten some traction. Folks have been using it, doing it. I like to think so. You know, to be perfectly honest, some of those memos might have just gone into a file somewhere, a circular file of some kind. But uh, I certainly learned a lot. And I know that the mission was definitely still carried out over the last couple of years. I've certainly personally seen, you know, governmental organizations grab SAS with both hands and really try to learn a lot of lessons about how to do things better and more efficiently in government and beyond utilizing a lot of these services. And I've seen a lot of these services mature in terms of being able to provide organizations like the federal government or universities or other places that you know are trying to follow some ethical or security guidelines. And these businesses have matured their products to be able to uh, offer those services to these groups that have tighter controls around their business process. That's cool. Well, any interesting stories in terms of being in the thick of it all? You know, we uh, the one thing I'll always remember is uh, we all showed up in D.C. and kind of had to pack into a couple of apartments together kind of overnight. And we would all be walking around town with these ID badges for the presidential transition team or PTT. And not a lot of us had worked in D.C. before. So we were all, you know, had to buy suits and uh, start to learn the ropes. And I think there was a lot of secrecy around it, or at least, you know, not secrecy, but they certainly didn't want us like giving off the cuff interviews around that time. And so we would only be allowed to use our badges when we were on site at the office. And so whenever anybody would just sort of walk out of the office and meet up for dinner later and still have their badge out, someone would say, ah, your PTT is showing. Oh, <laughs> zing. <laughs> Okay, that's fun. That's fun. Love my badge somewhere. Well, so now let's talk about sort of more recent experience. So, yeah. all right, here at 2U, you had the experience of building the IT department from the ground up. And so I'd like to hear maybe some fresh lessons learned in terms of when you have that responsibility and you get to establish a team you know, from scratch, what is that like? And what are some things you learned doing that along the way in terms of smart moves versus you know mistakes that you would rather others not repeat? <laughs> sure. So when I joined 2U about seven years ago, the company had only been around for a year before that and kind of went upstairs and helped my boss fix the Wi-Fi in the office. And he almost offered me a job on the spot. And he said, you know, you're going to be in charge of everything with electricity running through it. So okay. great. OK. <laughs> and so when I started out, you know, I knew that this was going to be a pretty fast growing company with a really smart business model and a real mission. So Everything that I sort of tackled from the beginning, I thought to myself, you know, if this is going to be a place where I'm going to be able to grow a team, I need to think about everything that I'm doing 
as a process that somebody else might take over someday. You know, so the classic sort of IT trick at first is obviously to create a help desk, right? That's your first step, right? Mm-hmm. Don't just email me because it might not always be me in this position. You know, email a queue. And even if I'm the only one taking work off of that queue, make sure you email that queue. Or, you know, if you come by my desk and you need some help, and I'll email the queue for you. So first big split was making sure that I had some help helping out employees with their day-to-day tasks. And again, having that queue there from the outset was super helpful. And then sort of dividing from there. So maybe a year later, it was clear, okay, business is really taking off. We're getting a lot of employees now. (laughs) What am I spending all my time on now? Okay, office infrastructure. Let's package that up and create a job description for the types of stuff that I'm doing there. And each year, it's sort of been a new set of things that have really been the focus, whether it's been, you know, backend server management, security is obviously on everyone's minds these days, telephones for us, because we have a lot of folks, admissions counselors and the like, talking to students all the time or student support folks helping students with their process. So for me, the sort of lesson from all that was something that actually was put very nicely by this woman, Patty McCord, a couple of years later, who I ran into, and she said, if I can't fire you, I can't promote you. <laughs> or I think put another way, you know, if you're indispensable at this task, then you're unpromotable. And mm-hmm. for me, you know, making sure that anything that I was getting myself into, I had a mind towards packaging up and potentially handing off at some later date. That was the big key. Oh, that's great. Yes. And so I'd like to get your take then with, you said each year there's sort of been a different focus, you know, and so in the midst of rapid growth and change, you know, I'm thinking sometimes people, when they encounter change, they get kind of irritated. Oh, well, we were in a good groove. It was working fine. It was like you changed everything around on us. So what are some of your perspectives on how you and your teammates stay sort of nimble and ready to switch to something new without, you know, too much feet dragging, belly aching? Sure, sure. I know you've had a couple of other guests talk about Agile at times and You know, in the tech world, there's sort of capital A Agile, which is, you know, some lessons around software development or business process. And then there's sort of the more lowercase a Agile, which is just what people think about, you know, in terms of the word agility, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you work in technology, you're either learning new stuff or you're falling behind. And I think that that's sort of a benefit that comes natural to this part of the industry, at least. We don't see a lot of folks come in applying for jobs that aren't interested in learning the new stuff. You know, so for us, that focus on capital A and small A agility has been a big importance. You know, I think a lot of the agile practices are designed to keep that lowercase agility in place, focusing on, you know, allowing teams and individuals to do what they're really good at, which means allowing them to make a lot of, you know, decisions that are very progressive and that keep us moving forward with the changes. A big part of it also has been, you know, focusing on using solutions that will grow with your business and focusing on what you do best, right? I think a lot about competitive advantage, right? We want folks here to be working on stuff that will provide better outcomes for students, right? We don't necessarily want them to be working on new ways of racking and stacking servers, right? We're going <laughs> to we're gonna outsource that part to the folks that do it the best, to someone like Amazon Web Services, or we're going to outsource it to someone like Salesforce. And I think, you know, something else that's really kept us rolling with the changes is this notion that, you know, it's tough to hire folks in an industry where these folks, the software development skills are at a very high demand. 
system administration skills are in very high demand, data analysis skills are in very high demand. And the folks that are good at that type of stuff, they want to work at progressive organizations. It's a big selling point to hiring when you can say, look, here's all the sort of tools that we have in our toolbox. And, you know, we're going to keep you learning while you're here as an education company. And it's a learning organization to boot. And those two things, I think, create a sort of a what we think of as a virtuous cycle of, you know, the tools that we use that help keep us at pace to handle scale are also the tools that help us hire folks that are interested in working towards the mission that we work towards. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That's great. Well, so now I want to talk a little bit about some skills beyond the tactical part. That's one of your specialties is talking about soft skills and developing those for tactical staff. Could you maybe start us off by sharing maybe the case for why that's even necessary or helpful, just in case we have a hardcore, you know, technical this is optimal, you know, kind of a listener. Yeah. Why is that important to begin with, even if you are like an engineer or a coder or developer who is, you know, ostensibly there to build cool stuff? Yeah. You know, I think it's a fairly well-known thing by now that the myth of the lone coder is that it's a myth. And, you know, the best pieces of software out there that everyone uses, the best services that everyone uses are created by highly collaborative teams. And so, I don't think it's that much of a hard sell to talk to someone about their career in an engineering field or in a technical field or any other sort of specialized field where you otherwise might think that you're going to have your head down all the time to, to sell them on the notion that their best work is going to be the work that they do collaboratively. I think when you look around at a lot of the most famous technologies in the world and when you look around at, in particular, technologies based on or that utilize open source technology, particularly web applications or any sort of, you know, website businesses or web services or SaaS services, you see these massive open source projects. And those open source projects are entirely collaborative. And the decision making that goes into those open source projects is entirely collaborative. And I think it's, you know, the notion that soft skills aren't important is either dead or almost dead, <laughs> at least in software field, because folks really do recognize that all of these projects are collaborative. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so when you talk about soft skills, could you maybe delineate a few of those? Like, what are some key things that you're talking about here with that umbrella yeah. term? I think a lot about Linus Torvalds, who's you know the creator of the Linux operating system that basically the whole world runs on now, <laughs> at least the internet. And one of the biggest projects besides Linux that he's known for is this software called Git, which is a collaboration software for software developers. You know, it's where people store their code and it's how people work together on code in particular. And, you know, I have this kind of theory that, you know, even if Linux were to disappear tomorrow, Lester Valls will go down in history as a genius for inventing Git because it is this revolutionary way of unlocking the potential of collaborative teams through, you know, the exchange of code in a very orderly fashion. And anybody who's ever, you know, contributed code to an open source project or worked on code in a business environment can see that it takes a lot of communication to effectively create anything of real value. Okay. So communication and collaboration indeed. So I'd love to hear then what are some maybe common, you know, pitfalls or shortcomings you see when folks are doing some communicating, they're doing some collaborating and it's suboptimal. Sure. Well, I think it's obvious that the value of communication is there. I think the obviousness is there for everybody. 
I think a lot of folks do get into some of those STEM fields, either coincidentally or maybe in some cases because of an introversion or, you know, an interest in things that are often asocial or at least don't always promote communication. So I think, you know, you can find folks that think that they can kind of get it all done on their own, right? Or fix a problem from their desk or solve a technical dispute from the command line without any sort of discussion. And I think, you know, in those instances, that's where I think a lot of these conversations really come up where, you know, we talk about how important it is to build consensus and how the consensus building comes not just from showing folks that you can make the best thing or do the best thing or make the best choice, but also being able to talk it out. And I think the plethora of manners in which folks can communicate today really helps with this. You know, Mm -hmm. for folks that don't feel that they're as eloquent, say, in person or don't feel that they're as eloquent in email, things like Slack or, you know, communicating via ticketing tools or, you know, the ease of use of some some collaboration like meeting technologies helps lower the barrier of entry, I'd say, for a lot of that kind of, I guess, skittishness around communication. I think it also goes beyond just the tools or just even, you know, face-to-face encouragement. I think, you know, a big part of what we've seen with a lot of the focus, especially in technical fields on, you know, creating really good positive cultures kind of revolves around that and sort of recognizing that it's not just on the individual to create that kind of safe space, but it's also on the organization. Mm-hmm. Okay, certainly. And so I'm thinking when you're coaching your team, you know, day in, day out, are there some particular things that you find yourself saying frequently, like, hey, do this and hey, don't do that? <laughs> you know, the main thing that I find is helpful is anything that can promote empathy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just a laundry list. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it differs for different people. But you know, we talk a lot about business process analysis, right? And I think there are some folks that specialize in it. There are some roles that that's all folks do, right? So on a team of software developers, you know, you'll have software developers, you'll have business analysts, and you'll have product managers and these types of things. And certain people might just specialize in business process analysis. So when I'm talking to folks about business process analysis, you know, I'm really talking about having empathy for your client. And if your client is internal or external or another developer or team member, it's basically trying to remind folks about having that curiosity about who they're communicating with, who they're collaborating with, who they're serving in that sense. When you have that level of empathy, when you have that level of mutual understanding, when you can see the other person's challenges, all this stuff gets easier. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of soul searching in the technology industry that I've seen over the last couple of years around this type of idea, you know, so one of the groups that I manage here is a team called DevOps. And this is a group that sort of combines some of the lessons of server operations, as well as the lessons of software development, or, you know, dev and ops. And the whole notion there, the whole movement around DevOps is very, you know, tied very closely to some of the agile movement is this idea of seeing each other's world as being this relatable set of challenges, this relatable set of, you know, goals, this, you know, common mission, this type of thing. So that's something that, you know, we talk about a lot here. And then, you know, I also find myself when I'm coaching other managers, really challenging them to, you know, dig deep into folks' day-to-day kind of frustrations and whatnot. A lot of times, 
people really just need to talk stuff out. You know, it seems super basic and it definitely is, but I'm sometimes surprised at, at that basic sort of disinterest, I guess, that you can see, or it's not even a disinterest. I think it's just that folks forget, you know, they get a little bit too much in the weeds at times and just being able to lift your head above a little bit and see other people again is super important. You know, a real easy trick too is to try to get people to have more actual face-to-face communication, even if that just means going over some sort of video conference as opposed to a phone call. I think, you know, that level of empathy really heightens. And I think a lot of the literature recently around cognitive behavior really reinforces this. Being able to see actual human faces (laughs) drastically improves the empathy that people feel for each other, even when they're talking about things that they might have disagreements about. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Thank you. Was there anything else you want to make sure that we cover off before we hear about some of your favorite things here? You know, one of the things that we talk a lot about here also is this notion of Conway's law, which is a software development truism. And it basically says that any sort of thing that you design will inevitably end up resembling the org chart or communication structure of the team that designed it. Hmm. It's super applicable when it comes to software development. I mean, it's hilariously applicable, (laughs) but I think it also is applicable to other business processes or other designs that are created by other types of business units. And for us, we think a lot about it because it really governs how, you know, we want to set up our structured communication. And if we want, you know, say a piece of software that works very, very closely with another piece of software, we might want to sit those two teams together. If we have, you know, two pieces of software that we need to be more transactional in how they interact with each other, then we might want to separate those teams a little bit more and do more structured communication between them. I find that that's a really helpful thing when it comes to talking to people about, you know, how their communication is actually important to the technology that they're working on and bridging that gap between the soft skills and the hard skills. Gotcha. Thank you. Well, then, could you start us off by sharing a bit about a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? The quote that probably rings through my head the most is just from a book. It's show some adaptability. I've thought about that a lot over the last couple of years as I've learned you know, how to do a lot of these different jobs in order to be able to manage folks doing them. And I think about it a lot. Show some adaptability. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or piece of research? I'm a huge podcast junkie. Your podcast is great, by the way. Oh, thank you. The one that I listen to the most is Econ Talk. And so I've read a lot of economics lately. It's maybe a lost calling. (laughs) And recently I'm expecting a daughter in February. So I've been really pleased by the research by this woman, Emily Oster who wrote a book called Expecting Better. Super interesting, and I think for parents and non-parents alike in terms of evaluating a lot of expert opinion and then making decisions around what kind of trade-offs you're comfortable with, which I think is kind of important for everybody. Oh, cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Far and away, my favorite book is called Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. It's one of those books that I think about a lot, and then I go and I read one or two passages, and if I read more than six passages, I end up rereading it. Wow. It's a novel, but very heavy on the theme of the combination of soft and hard skills, actually. Oh, cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether that's a hardware, software, or product you like? Yeah, you know, I was originally born in Louisiana, so I am one of those folks that carries a pocket knife. I have a Kershaw leak. There you go. Gets me some funny looks up north, but (laughs) I think it's good to have, be prepared and all that. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite habit or personal practice that you've found useful? I was thinking about that, you know, besides like coffee first thing in the morning, (laughs) one of the things that I really like to do is try to make every conversation that I have interesting to me. 
I think as an introvert, I find that small talk can kind of drain my batteries the fastest. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the interview you had the other day with the drill sergeant who was talking about, you know, don't plan your time, plan your battery, plan your Mm -hmm. energy. So I find that, you know, trying to find something interesting in every conversation that I have actually replenishes my batteries. Oh, that's awesome. That's a good little trick. I'm going to dig into that a bit. (laughs) And how about, is there a particular thing that you share that gets, you know, teammates or others you're communicating with really kind of nodding their heads like, yes, Artie, that is brilliant. (laughs) Probably one of the things I say a lot is I totally stole this from a friend, but he said to me once, honest work is the gift you give yourself. Mm. You know, I work for a great company, but I always try to remember that I work for myself first and, you know, try to look for that alignment. Okay, cool. And what would you say if folks want to learn more or get in touch with you is the best place that you'd point them to? Yeah. So uh, to you, you know, I do a lot of recruiting. So I'm out all over the New York meetup scene for technology. And then besides that, I'm at A. Jordan just about everywhere. I guess Twitter is probably my big one. And I do write blog posts occasionally, but I probably need to listen to a few more episodes of the podcast to get over some of my (laughs) writing perfectionism. Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) I'll be thinking about that actually as a topic. Appreciate it. Thank you. And do you have a final parting word, a challenge or call to action you'd issue to those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Just because it's timely and maybe a little bit tangential, but relevant given uh, some recent current events, I would give a challenge to everybody to enable two-factor authentication on as many services as they can. It's Google it, two-factor authentication, super simple. One of the easiest ways to start securing a lot of stuff and prevent some big disasters that we saw this year. So I guess that would be my plea as a security-minded person. Okay, thank you. Oh, that's very specific and unique. Thank you. (laughs) Cool. Well, Artie, this has been a lot of fun and I wish you tons of luck as your team and 2U continues to grow and keep on rocking. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Pete. Keep up the good work. More face-to-face conversation. There you have it. How simple. Boost the empathy, make everything simpler, even if it feels a bit inconvenient or it takes some extra time. So once more, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, or the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F106. And I do recommend you punch the subscribe button so you don't miss what's coming up next, which is actually a little Martin Luther King Day special episode. We're going to flash back to hearing from guest Nick Morgan, speech guru from episode 41, who's going to highlight precisely what makes Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech so exceptional and what we might learn about it for being better orators. And then we're back to guests. Bev K will kick us off on the following Wednesday and more good stuff to come. So look forward to catching you then. Peace out. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 